0: In three, two, one. By intentionally leveraging culture, you can inspire positive action through a compelling mission or vision statement and your core values. Today's guest is passionate about organizational culture, business strategy, leveraging diversity, equity, and inclusion for competitive advantage and has some great insight on leadership and work culture that can make or break your business. Join me now for my conversation with my guest, Andrew Adeniyi. Andrew, welcome to the program. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Now, where are we talking to you from today? So just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. Indianapolis, good football team. You used to have a good football team, but a big fan of the Colts. So good stuff. Hey, we're excited to have you here on the program. We want to talk about your book the Circle of Leadership, a Framework for Creating and Leveraging Culture. We want to talk about the circle of leadership. What does that look like? What does leadership look like today? How does DEI fit into that diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how companies can gain competitive advantage in today's marketplace through their culture? And I know you're a specialist and expert on that, but hey, before we get into the subject matter, how did you arrive here? What was your? journey from, hey, I'm going to use this as my subject matter, I'm going to write a book on this topic. How did Andrew get here?
1: Yeah, so I was working for an international retailer right out of school and the division I worked for in Indiana was one of the best in the country. CEO of that retailer came from that division. Several senior executives came from that division. Then I had the opportunity to go to the East Coast to work for one of the worst divisions in the company. And when I got there, it felt like a completely different company. And I remember scratching my head thinking, how can two divisions in the same company, same salary, same access to talent be drastically different? And I realized it was in leadership and culture. And that was really the catalyst for me to figure out how would I turn this ship around if I was the CEO or in that case, the VP of that division, how would I turn things around? And I realized there weren't really good frameworks, holistic frameworks on how to actually do that. So that really got me started on a journey to figure that out. I just so happened to be in my master's program with Michigan State in management strategy and leadership at the time time. So I was getting book knowledge and really a real life case study to be able to apply that knowledge.
0: Oh, excellent. And then you obviously had some experience in applying that knowledge and then you went out and applied it. How did the book come to be?
1: Yeah, the book was really just an opportunity to get that word out to as many people as possible. I found out about an accelerated book program out of Georgetown University and got to be a part of this dynamic cohort to work with a publisher called New Degree Press, where they don't own any percentage of your book, but they have a program for you. So the timing just aligned well, where I was like, you know what? I've created this framework that I think works. Let me interview folks and get some feedback. And I realized that this was a book worth sharing and just so happened to coincide with that program. So that's what led to it being a book in particular. Even as I was working, though, in corporate America at the time, I was started to do this consulting work on the side. I realized that when I would speak about some of the content, I then had some business leaders, business owners want me to come back and provide additional training, and consulting to their team. And that was the catalyst for that
0: growing. Oh, awesome. Now you developed a framework, the Circle of Leadership Framework, which focuses on purpose, people, and process, and the Mm -hmm. key areas, and you address that in the book. So let's start there. Like, what made you pick those three elements to be part of your main framework? You haven't illustrated it as a Venn diagram, but what made you pick those three things?
1: It started with a realization that most organizations that are missing the mark and really not fostering that people-first culture, they don't have a common purpose that's compelling, that they include in all the communication, that really inspires. Inspires people intrinsically. I realized that was a missing component. A lot of times, right. people would jump straight to people. I need to have the best people on my team. That's absolutely critical, right? But if they don't know the why behind the organization, they don't understand the bigger cause, the bigger reason for why they're there. You're not going to be able to maximize that potential. So, just from the research and the interviews and the conversations I was having, it really became clear that you really have to start with why. And Simon Sinek start with why definitely was influential in just understanding the magnitude of the why. And then, you know, Jim Collins, one of my favorite authors he talks about get the right people on the bus, get the wrong people off the bus, make sure they're in the right seats. So I realized that then is the next area of focus is to figure out who is going to be with you. And then you talk about process, this is systems. These are activities, these are strategies, right? These are the things that a lot of organizations go to when they wanna pull levers on culture. They may add a ping pong table or add flex days or do some of these other things, but those things aren't really impacting people the way they should, because you're missing out on the bigger question, which is why.
0: So start with why, and Simon does a good job of that. What's the purpose of the organization? Why do you exist? And then once we have that, we work on the people. So this is where we hire the people. We look at firing, employee acquisition, then we want to keep them because people are bailing and and leaving. We're seeing quiet quitting all over the place. And then we want to expand that. And that'll be part of the framework of our topic today is diversity. And we've talked about this on the show. There's organizations that are still legacy organizations, they're old school, and they're slow to embrace DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion. And yet it's there for a competitive advantage. Now, they should be embracing it because it's the right thing to do, to have a diverse workforce, to include others and people maybe with disabilities or handicaps. But there's an economic reason why we should do it as well. There's some good economics and good studies that are showing companies can profit from it. And that shouldn't be the reason they're doing it, but there is an ROI to this. So it's not just paying lip service. It's actually, hey, how is our organization leading the way? And, and maybe we start with this. People often misunderstand the difference between equality and equity. Explain the difference to us.
1: Yeah. So when we're talking about equity, this is access to resources and tools needed to grow, needed to do well, right? It's a custom approach. It's not a one size fits all. That's what we're talking about when we talk about equity. When we talk about equality, this is where we say everyone gets the same access to resources. Everyone gets the same output, if you will. So if you think about it this way, imagine three people trying to watch a baseball game and the objective is to watch a baseball game. But One person's six foot, one person is crippled, and another person is four feet tall, right? Depending on where they're standing outside the fence, to be able to watch the baseball game, they all need different resources to do the task at hand, right? So if you gave everyone the same step stool, that doesn't allow each person to do the task at hand. So the same thing applies in the workplace. I had a client who had an employee who left the organization on good terms, wanted to come back months later while they had an accident during their time of separation from the company and they got visually impaired. So they were talking to me, the, the client was talking to me on what things should they take into consideration? How can they go about bringing this person back on? Guess what? That person needs a different type of monitor. That person needs different equipment at their cubicle than the person right next to them to do the same job. And equitable approach is identifying that and then addressing that and not saying, no, everyone has to get the same laptop. Everyone has to get the same keyboard because we want to be equal. we want to be fair when equity is truly the fair way to
0: approach it. That's a great example. Why do companies resist that? Is it the cost factor, the nuisance factor? If I've got hundred employees or 50 employees and they all have different requirements, what turns most organizations off or is maybe a roadblock for them? I think it's mainly
1: ignorance, right? There's a misunderstanding of what equity even means. I speak to CEOs all the time and... This time and time again is where we end up putting a pin in and actually talking through. And I can't tell you how many CEOs afterwards say, you know what? I never looked at it that way. I've been looking at it all wrong. Equity is really just good leadership.
0: That's a good point. Leadership. And to your point, it's that bottom, it's supporting the group up. It's if we were to invert the pyramid, the leadership pyramid and invert it. So the leadership's at the bottom with the rank and file top, it's there to provide you with the tools and the support that you need. So that was a very succinct definition of that is it's a good one for me too so i think our listeners will find that as a useful tool how would you define work culture what does that encompass
1: yeah so in my book the circle of leadership i define culture as the unwritten yet commonly shared set of beliefs that guide behavior and culture to me is really just how do you do things around here another way to look at is the leadership shadow Uh, heard put that way before. And I thought that really resonated. It's really just about how do we get the work done at this establishment? And the reason why culture is so important is because it influences behavior. And we all work to get results, but to get results, it takes behavior. And a lot of times changed behavior. So anytime you have anything that can pull on those levers of altering the behavior within your organization and influencing the organization, you're gonna have a better chance of achieving any type of business results that you're looking for.
0: How do leaders then begin to influence or even create culture? it already exists, you already have one, whether you like it or not, whether it's intentional or not, or whether you've designed it or not, or can they be designed and how do you cultivate that culture?
1: yeah it goes back to starting with answering the question or attempting to answer the question why are we in business why do we exist what are we trying to accomplish if we look 10 years from now we wave a magic wand and we've knocked it out of the park what does that look like it starts with defining that right it starts with understanding what you're trying to accomplish in my organization our vision is to become the largest black-owned dei consulting firm in the midwest and we want to do that by 2030. So it's specific and it's a big goal. It's an audacious goal. But the why behind it is because we understand that most workplaces are filled with people who hate their workplace. And that is disheartening and disappointing to me because it's controllable. So we're really on a mission to transform cultures and to allow leaders to know that you can have the tools and resources needed to have an engaging, productive, and fulfilled culture where turnover is not a problem.
0: Yeah. And you're going to keep those people. So once you've established that culture and you've talked about the three ingredients, so in your book, the circle of leadership, you've divided into those three sections, purpose, people, and process. You call those the three Ps and why you believe they're the pillars of leadership, right? And so you've already explained that. Why do some leaders hold back on going down that road? What's the resistance point? From my homework and research, it seems like C-suite pays lip service to it. There's some tokenism there, but they're really not committed. Is it that they don't know, or they just are staying in that ignorance?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where when you look at culture, a lot of it's intangible and it's a lot easier, especially when you're constrained with time, which a lot of business leaders are to focus on the tangible. Let me check this email. Let me finish this spreadsheet. Let me do some of those things instead of, hey, let me write a handwritten card and mail this off to one of my direct reports. Their birthday's coming up. Or, hey, how about I take the first 10 minutes of this 30-minute connect to talk nothing about business and to understand what's going on in their life? Those types of things are trade-offs that business leaders oftentimes are willing to because of what seems more important and urgent things to take advantage of. But when you think about culture, it's really that super important, but not necessarily super urgent to do it. And those oftentimes be the things that we kick down the road, but ultimately would have the biggest impact on results if we prioritized it.
0: Chapter two of your book, you talk about the 80-20 rule about leveraging culture. We all yeah. know Pareto's principle, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. How does Pareto's principle work with what you're trying to communicate? Yeah, so it's
1: one of those uh, tools I wanted to put in leaders' tool belts, if you will, around culture, practical ways to start implementing some of this stuff. And it starts with time, right? The saying is you look at your checkbook or you look at your account and how you're spending your finances as well as your calendar and you see what's important to you. So it starts with allocating time on the calendar, right? So I recommend to shoot for a lofty goal that 20% of your time is dedicated towards culture. Now that could be time on a team meeting, a group meeting, that could be what you do on Monday morning, that could be the time to check in, or even just strategizing around ways to be intentional with culture. But how do you just aim for that? Is it all about hitting 20% on the dot? Absolutely not. It's more about intentionality and creating space for you to be able to prioritize culture.
0: It's like scheduling your workout. You're talking on a 50, 60 hour work week. You're talking 10, 12 hours that you're focused maybe a couple of hours every day on Beating the culture or cultivating the culture uh, is a good, great term for it. Doing those things, reaching out. What are all the procedures and steps that you give out? Cause you talk about vision and values and people and hiring and, and we mm-hmm. go from there. Let's talk about the hiring process. First of all, we're starting to see with some organizations they are doing blind hiring because we all have these biases, right? Give me an example. I, and I've told this on the show before I was at a conference for a major corporation, they're in the Fortune 500 and I go to the sales conference, which is a lot of the conferences I get to go to, and there's 300. People in the conference, and most of them are all like five, 10, six foot two white guys. There was one person of color and there was about half a dozen women. That's it. And Mm -hmm. they're all top producers. They're all good top producers. But that immediately tells me something about that company. And I'm looking at that organization and I'm just going, all right. What in the culture? Because when a manager is leaving, we always tend to want to replace ourselves with someone who looks like us, does it the way that we do. And that's just a bad strategy overall. And so a lot of companies are doing when you're applying applying for a job, a lot of HR people, they don't see pictures the way they're done in the applications. And we're seeing this happen But they're blind applications, basically based on your merit and your credential. What have you done? And then when you get far down the food chain, maybe have a conversation. Are you starting to see anything or any changes around that or progress when it comes to hiring?
1: I think people are questioning their processes and approaches more but I can't say I've seen the type of progress I would like to see, especially from a wide perspective, industry-wide, and especially with small to medium-sized businesses. I think there's a lot of opportunity. The first thing that comes to mind is job descriptions. There's studies out there that show that women in particular will not apply to jobs if they don't meet close to 100% of the qualifications, right? Right, Whereas men, on the other hand, if we meet 60%, (laughs) 60%, <laughs> we're firing it off. We're right?
0: way too optimistic yeah, about so, our abilities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You start with the words listed to even
1: recruit. You're already potentially closing the door to different segments of the population. So I'm seeing organizations miss that opportunity. Then I think we're missing the opportunity to fish in different ponds and do it for the right reasons and build long-term relationships with those universities and those organizations while we're doing that. The conferences you attend, that also plays a huge role in you being able to just try to access talent. A lot of times I hear organizations say that we don't wanna sacrifice on talent to get diversity. You're right. You should not, and you don't have to. But if you keep going to the organization and the universities that don't have the demographics that are not accounted for in your organization, you're never gonna be able to bridge that gap. Practically speaking, I think we have to look at the job descriptions. We gotta fish in different ponds. You have to be intentional with making sure that you have a diverse slate of candidates before you begin interviewing. That's something I saw Starbucks do really well, is really being intentional with, hey, if we don't have 30% uh, candidates from a minority population, we're not gonna even begin interviews. Does that mean you're gonna select that person? No, but it does mean that you want a good representation of the workforce before you even begin to hire that process. And then the last thing I'll mention is around bias. This is why this is important to have panels and to have multiple people interviewing at the same time to be Mm. able to account for bias. And ideally, having a person of color and a person from as many different demographics as possible representative on that panel to ensure bias doesn't creep in when the decision-making process starts.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We all have them we all judge books by their cover. That's plain to see we do it and it's a habit. Why has there been such a battle? Like when I see some of the DEI initiatives out there, first of all, it becomes political, right? Everything becomes political ESG. Everything becomes political in this country, but it doesn't have to be, but there's some real advantages to having a diverse workplace. What are some of the big advantages that you've seen in your experience by having a robust DEI initiative or program that's working? I
1: think you're just better suited to make better decisions. I think you have less blind spots. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Uh, a good friend of mine, Jimmy McMillan, is the chief DI officer for Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And he was telling a story about how he hired a Hispanic woman, younger woman for an internship. And in the internship, during the process of working with him, she realized that none of the signs in the Speedway were in Spanish. So think about creating a welcoming environment for the entire community. Are the Hispanic people who come into that stadium going to feel at home when in their first language, signage is not written? And that's something that Jimmy said, I would have never thought of that. And here she comes in, different perspective, different background, she's now adding value. That is not only going to benefit from a business perspective with customers, it's also gonna benefit from a talent perspective with the Hispanic population tapping in that way within the workforce. So that's just a small example of how you can minimize blind spots by increasing diversity, but it's also important to acknowledge that you have to be able to foster psychological safety. And this is something I talk a lot about because I've also seen where leaders will be intentional about diversity, diverse talent comes in, but then they don't feel comfortable sharing their diverse viewpoints, right? Because now they're assimilating to the culture. They're not safe to challenge the status quo and say, hey, actually, we're not making the right decision because people with a disability are going to be disadvantaged by that, or you're missing out on X, Y, and Z. If somebody's not comfortable to a voice there, it defeats the purpose of prioritizing diversity.
0: So by having a good diverse workforce, we're actually bringing in multiple voices and seats at the table and other perspectives, opinions, and mindsets. It doesn't mean we're going down that road, but we want that perspective, that insight, because it could be real valuable. Plus it potentially can open up new markets, or there might be reasons not to. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert and grow our business and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Andrew Adeniyi, When you have a DEI program, what's a good place for companies to start? So let's say we're a small, mid-sized business and we're going, hey, you know what? We want to support this, we get it, we think it's important. How do I start? What do I do? I don't have the budgets for big HR and big initiatives. What can I do as a small business owner? Bigger companies generally already have this one, kind of, they're working on it, but how does a small, mid-sized company deal with that issue?
1: Yeah, I think the CEO has to be able to answer the question of why is this important to you? Why do you want to focus on this and put words to that? Because that's going to be among the first communication that goes out to your organization in regards to what you're doing and why. There's some people who still don't believe DEI is good for the workplace, right? So the CEO needs to be able to state, we believe this, I believe this, and here's why. Once you have that, it starts with data. You've got to get employee feedback. you got to understand the overall sentiment around fairness, around pay, around belonging, access to resources and tools they need, operating in their strengths. Sending out a survey and being able to get quantitative and qualitative feedback is super critical. And that's something my firm does for clients. We use data to extract insights, and then we uh, be able to present that data in a DEI detailed report. And then we move on to creating a strategic plan, but for small business owners out there who may not have the budget to bring on a consultant, may not have the budget to hire somebody full-time to do this work, understand your why, send out a survey to get feedback from your workforce, and then get smart people in a room and figure out how you're going to create a plan of action based on the data you collected.
0: No, that makes sense. And you outline that a lot. You're talking about this and finding our purpose or mission statement or vision and values, chapter four of your book. And then how to hire? And you're in your chapter five, so there's lots of tools for people who don't have the budgets. This becomes a good roadmap. It's a blueprint, really, if you're looking for a framework, or they can get hold of you. And we'll put your information in the show notes at the end there as well. Let's talk about. All right, we've got our force. We're expanding. We've got work to do. Again, we see companies sometimes, and they have to overcome internal biases. Like maybe they have a HR director or person of color, and then they're coming out with a strong DEI program. And then of course you've got people on the other side of the fence going, "Oh, great, this is a personal agenda. You're driving." your own agenda you've seen and heard this all you can't win either way right you're doing it is it one of those things that's kind of slow to adapt at first but then as it builds momentum it feeds on itself and grows in a good positive way
1: if done right yeah but time in itself and just the amount of exposure people have to it in itself, I don't think is going to convince folks to truly invest in and commit. People may tolerate it, but we're really looking for commitment here. And I think one of the challenges we've seen is with the George Floyd murder, it automatically created this situation where people feel like they needed to decide. They needed to pick a path. Meanwhile, they don't understand the difference between equity and equality. They don't know the statistics on how diversity helps the workforce. There wasn't that understanding and people just jumped into a lot of times some more advanced topics of DEI. And I think we lost some folks and I think we rubbed some folks the wrong way. And I think that plays a role in why there's been this false start for a lot of companies around DEI. But the ones who have taken the time to assess the situation, create a plan, get some data, invest in training and self-educating and then really create a sustainable path forward. Those are the organizations that are going to have the momentum that you spoke about because they're doing it the right way. Sure.
0: Are you seeing that trend increase? Are you seeing improvements? Let's call it DEI 2.0. Is it growing? Is it catching on better? Are we seeing expansion of that? What are you seeing out there?
1: Yeah, I would say this. I would say the people-driven cultures out there, the ones that are the best places to work, They're continuing to invest in DEI and they're doing so by putting resources towards it and by ensuring that there's time on some of the critical meetings on a frequent basis to allow it to stay alive. Those are organizations I'm seeing are doing a good job. The ones that are a little shaky on culture are really not where they they ultimately want to be. There's a a large margin between that. They're the ones where I'm seeing DEI fall off the wagon and I'm seeing DEI not be as prioritized. I can say just like clients are determining if they want to work with my firm, it's the other way around, too. I'm not going to work with firms that have terrible cultures. And when I look up, that's the common theme with the diverse portfolio we have. And we have a lot of different industries represented, but they all are people-driven and they do a much better job of keeping DEI alive.
0: Awesome. Let's switch gears a little bit. Talk about, we've hired good people now. We've got a good team working for us. Now we got to keep them. And chapter seven of your book, Retention, you call it, was the subtitle, The Art of Appreciation. Why do some leaders hold back on giving people the recognition or appreciation they deserve?
1: I think there's some myths out there, I think, and this could be consciously or subconsciously, but I feel like some people believe if I give all this praise and recognition, they're going to stop doing what they were doing. They're going to think they're better than they are or want to raise or want special treatment. And there's problems that could come from that. I also think there's situations where some leaders believe that's your job. You're supposed to show up to work every day for two years in a row. Like, why do I need to pat you on the back for doing something you should be doing anyway? And I think that also plays a role in that. I think a third one I would mention is really just people are so busy that they don't take the time to let people know that they care about them and let people know that they appreciate them. And even if things are bad, it would be significantly worse if you didn't show up. I just want to let you know that we're not taking those moments to really connect with people and put those deposits because we're so busy that if you're not intentional with something like that, it's just not going to work.
0: Oh, well, that makes sense. I see that even in my marriage with my wife and I do the grocery shopping and cooking. And she routinely is, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. But it makes me want to do more. It makes me want to do more. And this is the most powerful relationship we can have. It's personal. It's not professional, but it's personal. And you get into other relationships, and I know what it means to us on a personal level, so imagine what they could do on a professional level. We all need that. We need that validation. What does being appreciated and recognized actually do for the employee let's go to that side of the table so the leader can do the appreciation and express appreciation for even mundane things or things that they do appreciate the key is to be authentic with it by being that way with people though what does that actually do for the employee
1: yeah so they're more engaged to feel a sense of belonging they're more productive when i was writing my book and comparing the two divisions the division from indiana that had the great culture that vp fostered a culture where you didn't want to let her down You would work through the night to be able to complete something just to not let her down. There's no fear there. It was, I got your back. I want to show up for you. That's the result. She's the type of person who would send handwritten cards to you, would remember names, remember birthdays, would be intentional with taking notes. She did those little things. And the outcome was people who would bend over backwards. The VP on the East Coast, he was one that let out of fear. We need to hit these numbers or else we need to get these results. We need to be doing whatever it takes to do X, Y, and Z without the empathy, without the support, without the genuine expression of appreciation and recognition. And that's a trickle down effect all throughout the organization. So that's a call out that I make in the book as well. Just a reference, like those little things add up, the things we kick down the road, those add sure. up and it can be detrimental if we don't prioritize them.
0: Yeah, they accumulate if you don't have it as part of a strategy, which goes to really the art of the relationship, right? Because in a personal relationship, if I appreciate you and I'm grateful for you for doing things, I'm going to tell you, hey, really good. Andrew, you did a great job with this, man. I love it. You're so awesome at this stuff. You may have heard it a million times. We're speakers too, right? So when we get done speaking, it's uh, the audience applauds, or, hey, you did a good job. We like that. That's good. You never get tired of it. At least I don't. Versus if they're all running out of the room. Do you see a gender difference with this? Do women do this better than men or men do? It better than women just on an intuitive basis and it's a learning process what do you see
1: i would say from my experience it's been relatively equal i've had more male leaders than women leaders though so just in terms of quantity it might be a little more skewed towards just have a larger data set with men Well, I would that's say. how
0: the society is anyway that's how business world is anyway right it's skewed yeah. that way yeah
1: But I would say that I'm well aware of some of the challenges that women face in the workplace and how they can be labeled and how it can maybe be difficult for them to be assertive and not be labeled as aggressive and to ensure that their voice is heard. So I'm very well aware of that. And I will say that when women have really good control and awareness of emotions, and men for that matter too, but women especially, they seem to be a lot more effective at being empathetic, connecting in a way, but being able to know how to put their foot down without stomping it, right? And really being able to hold people accountable at the same time. Uh, I think women who have that connection there they seem to be a lot more dynamic than some of the other male leaders that at least i've experienced in my career
0: yeah i think your empathy comments a good one we go up there and want to do the hunting go kill the thing and have someone else clean it and that's our nature what are some of the things that we can do our leaders do to make people feel more appreciated i would
1: start with you know real practical birthdays make it one right Your direct reports have their birthdays listed and send them handwritten notes. We're accustomed to getting bills and things that we're not really looking forward to in the mail, but to see a handwritten note by your leader, that goes a long way. I think just listening, to your people, allowing them to know that you're listening and then taking action based on the feedback that that they provide. Those are small wins to let people know that you care. Uh, I think awards and recognition, public recognition, whether that's a LinkedIn post shouting an employee out externally or internally, sending out an email to say, hey, this is somebody who exemplifies the mission, vision and values of our organization. They're doing a tremendous job, keep up the great work. Just that doesn't cost any money and leaders miss out on that opportunity to really have emotional deposits into their people in that way.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good way. And like I say, birthdays, it's the personal touch. And when you send it a handwritten note, they'll probably keep it because they don't get very many of them. They'll throw out other things, but they'll probably keep the handwritten note or it goes into their file or whatever it is. Just an add on to that, just something we do, but I think it goes hand in hand with this. We'll acknowledge your birthday or a special occasion, but we'll also acknowledge your anniversary date with the organization. So let's say July 4th is when you started. We're going to send you a handwritten quote and maybe send in some balloons around the thing or maybe a lunch thing or a coupon to go to Starbucks and get a, a brownie and a latte of your choice. Hey, happy anniversary. We know you've been with us five years now. We know you have choices to work elsewhere if you wanted to. Thanks for choosing to work with us. We're glad to have you in our family. It yeah. goes a long way. goes a long way. So those, those
1: are the ones people remember too. And they share those stories out, right? They mean yeah, a lot. They
0: yeah, they do. Which then leads to, because it's who we know in our network, we can then bring other people and so it becomes people want to come and work for you just because of the kind of organization you are because people want purpose and they want to feel appreciated you talk a lot about andrew intangibles in your book what are you talking about when you reference the intangibles
1: Yeah, I think intangibles can be anything labeled as soft skills. Traditionally, anything labeled as on the more emotional side or people side or less quantifiable side, if you will. That's what I'm referring to when I talk about the intangibles of leadership, intangibles of business, right? It's those moments where I used to work for an international retailer, like I mentioned as a multi-unit leader, and there's a store manager, for example, who had just a really terrible day. Maybe a couple of people called off, somebody quit, busy with the festival nearby that they didn't plan for, just a terrible situation, driving to that store and rolling up your sleeves and and helping them out. That's an intangible moment where I don't have to do that as a leader, but that is an example, that is a story that's gonna be shared when they ask, so how's Andrew as a leader? Let me tell you about this time where I wanted to cry and here my leader showed up ready to help me out. Those are intangible examples.
0: Yeah. And there's lots of good examples of that where you can show up and help them or even get on the line and roll your sleeves up and get dirty. Something's broken. And when they see that you're willing to go to bat for them, that goes a long way. And I think that's core in your book and in your leadership strategies. It's about service. It's not about me bossing you about. It's about setting the vision. Here's the vision. And then providing all those tools and resources, you need to be successful to execute on the strategy or whatever it was. But if there's an issue, jump in and help out. And when they see you doing that, or when they see you working the long hours with them or willing to lead the line, they're going to follow you anywhere. Just like you said, your leader that you had, where you followed her, people wanted her to perform for her because who she was as an individual. I think that's really good leadership. You've interviewed many different leaders that you include in your book. What was one of your favorite takeaways from someone that you interviewed?
1: Yeah. So Dr. Philip Powell, he's a professor at the IU Kelly School of Business in Indianapolis. And I was talking to him and he mentioned uh, a nugget that has really stuck with me. And that's fail fast, fail forward. Fail fast, fail forward. And, and he mentioned that as advice for leaders and entrepreneurs who are leading teams and really trying to innovate and do things out there. And the reason why it hit home for me is because in order to foster a culture where your team fails fast and fails forward, there's got to be psychological safety present. There's got to be clear direction present. There's got to be clear communication. There's got to be feedback and timely feedback, right? Non-critical feedback. There's probably healthy conflict in there because what you're doing is saying, hey, it's okay if you mess up. You don't need to feel like you have all the answers or feel like you have it all together. You don't need to be afraid to say that you missed the mark. We're actually encouraging that. In fact, you'll be celebrated and used as an example of how to fail fast and fail forward. And I think if leaders foster an environment where their team feels safe to do that, you're probably fostering a very dynamic culture. That's engaging.
0: I worked for some oil and gas companies and one of the big companies that we worked for had eight different teams that they used for exploration and development. And mm-hmm. one of the teams was designed strictly to fail. They were all high risk. Their whole team was, you're going to fail 90% of the time. But when you win, you're going to win huge. And that one is going to be responsible for 60, 70% of the revenue that you generate. And it might be a year or two. It might be three years, four years before you get the huge win. The whole company is doing really well, except this one unit. And they had the tools and the resources. And their whole goal was just to go and experiment, lead it out, fine-tune it, get it working, and then bring it back. So it was like an entrepreneurial group lab, if you will. And they were very successful when they hit, they hit huge and they would come up with projects and I won't go into the deals, oil and gas, technically related, but I've seen that work and they like it too, as long as they're yeah. know that they're in a safe environment. Some of our listeners are established business people and C-level folks, but many are entrepreneurs who are just beginning to scale their business and to start to build their team. What piece of advice do you have for an aspiring leader who may be listening right now?
1: Yeah, I think this theme has continued on throughout the entire conversation, but I think the more clarity we can have as leaders on our why allows us to then springboard into how do you operationalize that why? How do you take that vision, that mission, that set of core values, and how do you weave it through everything that you do to where you hire through that lens of your why? You fire through the lens of that why, you incentivize and provide bonuses through the lens of that why, and you make decisions through the lens of those guiding principles. So I would just encourage the people who are listening to really do an audit. And ask yourself, what's my why and how am I spending my time? How am I spending my money? And is there alignment to really show just how important my why is to
0: how I'm allocating my time? And you do that, your company your firm does that, we will go in and help perform audits if they need that. That's something I know you can do. Let's talk about your company or business and how you came to be. You obviously decided to branch out on your own. What's the total wheelhouse? What's the ideal type of client for you, somebody who should be giving you a call and engaging your firm?
1: Yeah, small to medium-sized businesses. I would say typically our most common client is between 100 and 2,000 employees. So it's a pretty large range there. We work with manufacturing companies, nonprofits, government as well. And for us, you gotta be purpose-driven. You have to be very intentional with making sure your people enjoy their workplace, making sure that you're doing the best you can to have a servant leadership mentality. And those are the firms that we wanna work with. You don't have to have DEI figured out, or you don't have to have your workplace culture, uh, roadmap figured out. We just need people to understand the value of it and gotten to a point where they say, we need help. We just don't know what to do next. Those are
0: typically our best clients. And what's the best way for them to get hold of you, Andrew?
1: So I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew and Denny. That's an easy way to get in contact. You can also go to our website, Solutions.us, and you can reach out to us there. we will be happy to speak with you. But those are two real simple ways they can get in contact.
0: Awesome. And they can get the book where books are found on their favorite bookstore or Amazon? Or-
1: yeah. My personal website, andrewandenny.com is an option. You can get a signed copy that way, or you can go to Amazon. You'll get it in 25 minutes. So if you want to get it quickly, I definitely recommend going on Amazon to get it.
0: Yeah, that's how I did it. But maybe I should have got that autographed copy. That would have been good. Awesome. The book is titled The Circle of Leadership, a framework for creating and leveraging culture. Thank you so much. We'll put all your contact information and those links you mentioned in the show notes, you do a great job. You're a great advocate for your mission. And I know you got a lot of value that you can offer your clients. And help people become compliant, become an engaged work culture, and develop cultures within their own organizations that are going to take them to the next level and help them become preferred in today's marketplace. So, Andrew, thanks for being our guest. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is great. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.